Smith, and this is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. On this week's episode, we speak with Sophia Fenner about her new book, Shouting in a Cage. After that, we talk to Christian Ulrichsen, the Baker Institute at Rice University, who talks about Saudi Arabia, the GCC, and the changes that are taking place across the Middle East. Thanks for listening to our podcast. the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and on this week's book episode, we're joined by Sophia Fenner of Colorado College and the author of the brand new Shouting in a Cage, Political Life After Authoritarian Co-Optation in North Africa, uh, which just came out in actually my series at Columbia University Press. So thank you. Um, and uh, yeah. thanks for joining the program. Why don't you tell us a little bit about this book and um, you know what, what's the big takeaway? Absolutely. Well, thank you, first of all, for having me. Um, and it's really great to be talking about this in a POMEPS context, because POMEPS and the Junior Book Scholars or Junior Scholars Book Development Workshop played a huge role in supporting this project. So shout out to anyone out there who's got a first book project. Um, this has been such a helpful community for me, and it's really been a huge part of the book coming out. So um, with that said, um, I had the good fortune to be an undergrad and in grad school during the kind of last 20 years of flourishing of literature on authoritarianism. And that meant that I read a lot of what we now think of as classics when they were new and when they were first coming out and, and was really part of a, a really exciting community um, of folks trying to get authoritarian politics a little bit more right than we had gotten it before. And one of the things that I noticed while I was reading all of those works um, was that there were these great theories and, you know, it made logical sense. But and when when people talked about repression, I could see it. You know, when people talked about um, legitimation or rejected legitimation as an approach, I could sort of see it empirically. People kept talking about co-optation and I couldn't see it. What I saw that we were assuming that co-optation was happening and we were assuming that it worked a certain way, but the empirics weren't always there. And of course, when you're studying authoritarianism, the empirics are really difficult to get sometimes. Um, and so I, I found myself like consistently in grad school thinking, I really wish someone would like go and check and just see if this is actually how this works. And then there's that point in grad school where you realize it's going to have to be me, right? No one else is going to step in and rescue me by doing this project. I have to do it. So I really did this project to go and see what co-optation actually looks like. So how does it happen? How does it change over time? How does it affect parties? How do parties talk about it? Um, and how does it kind of reshape political systems in the long run? Because I thought we had a lot of great theory, but we didn't have a lot of really solid empirics. Um, and I think part of that is because people look at co-opted parties and say, well, they're useless and pointless and boring. Why study them? And one of the things that I've been trying to do with this book um, is to, to sort of help people realize that if you start peeling apart what look like very boring parties, you find a very interesting story. Um, so underneath these the Waft Party in Egypt, the Istiklal Party in Morocco, kind of has been not very relevant, usually dismissed as like in the pocket of the regime. But they used to be these incredibly powerful national movements. They used to be the most powerful movements in their respective countries. And the thing that changed is co-optation. So clearly it has effects and effects that ripple through entire political systems. But 
because they look so boring in the present, I think the incentive was low for people to just like go and see what this process actually looked like. So that's what I did. And I think the key takeaway um, of all of this is that I think that what the book shows is that simple materialist transactional accounts of how co-optation works are missing an immense amount of complexity um, that we've fundamentally gotten why co-optation works wrong. Um, and we also, our own theories that we have or the pre-existing theories aren't very good at accounting for how co-opted parties behave. So I think this is a great example of how, you know, the empirics always save you going out into the field, talking to people, reading things, spending the time to try to figure something out, um, you know, actually results in a, a novel theoretical and conceptual approach, which is what I'm trying to present here. No, it's, it's really interesting. But, you know, let me kind of take you up on uh, your own invitation. And and, and you mentioned this uh, in the text of the book at several points. But these these are useless, stupid and boring parties, uh, the waft and the istiklal. So why study them? Why why make them the central pivot of, of this book? So I think a couple of reasons. One of them is just that they were the pivots. They were the empirical cases in the books I was reading. Hmm. So, you know, actually a lot of our so-called canonical work on co-optation from the first decade of the 21st century uses the istiklal and the waftist cases. Um, you know, I happen to be a Middle East specialist. And so these this felt like if I was going to go check something, that these were crucial cases to check. Um, and that, you know, my case selection was not so much based on control as it was based on these are the cases people use to illustrate the theories that we currently have. You know, what if they're not quite right? Yeah. Or those very cases, you know, it, it felt like a, a really good way to make a powerful intervention because otherwise people are always going to say, well, you know, this fits this like tiny socialist party in Morocco, but it doesn't fit the Istiklal, right? And I wanted to be clear that, that you know, yeah. um, we hadn't been accounting for the very cases we had been using as a field. I think the second reason, um, in addition to the fact that they have, you know, were once incredibly powerful and have been weakened by co-optation, is that one thing I did in Egypt and Morocco was met people who had devoted their entire lives to these parties. And I think it's really easy for us as scholars or as people who are observing political life um, to kind of dismiss them and say, like, what's the point of that? Why would you do that? But when you're actually sitting in front of someone who, you know, despite having essentially nothing to show for it, has been a WAFT activist for 40 or 50 years. I mean, I think that in and of itself is interesting, right? So half of this book is really about how co-optation damages opposition, but the other half is about how opposition survives and why it is. And I think that was a huge motivating question for me is like, why would you join these parties? But I talked to a ton of people who, you know, for whom these aren't useless or boring or has-beens or irrelevant. That was how they had chosen to do their political engagement. And I think that really helped me realize that there was something here um, that was worth talking about. Now, for those who um, who haven't like kept up with their Egyptian and uh, Moroccan history, could you just walk us through just a little bit about, you know, the Waft, the Istiklal, what they were and what happened to them? That'll, that'll help yeah. to frame some of the theoretical issues that uh, you bring out so well in the book. Absolutely. And I think part of the reason that people are a little fuzzy on these parties is that their independent histories, like their histories since each country became independent, are almost non-existent in English. There's almost nowhere you could go to find them. And so 
I have a like pretty dry, if I do say so myself, historical chapter in here, but it's in there because that was the history I couldn't find when I was trying to do this research. So there's an amazing parallelism that initially got me interested between the Weft and the Istiklal. They both started out as anti-colonial nationalist movements. So Istiklal against primarily the French, although secondarily other powers that were involved in Morocco, the Weft against the British um, after the 1919 revolution in Egypt. Um, and, you know, the Weft was the you know, Egypt had this like 20, 30 year long parliamentary experiment between the early 1920s and the early 1950s. And the WAFT was the only meaningful party um, that wasn't, you know, affiliated with the British. So they were the only big party that came to power, power in quotation marks, obviously, um, but they were the leading nationalist party. In Morocco, because the nature of colonialism was more fragmented, the nature of opposition was also more fragmented. So Istiklal was not the only party um, but it was a very significant one. Um, and that of course doesn't mean that like every Moroccan or every Egyptian joined these nationalist movements. I think we tend to overstate that, but in comparison to the other parties that were around at the time, these were powerhouses. And so they had a reasonable expectation that they would play a significant role in political power at independence. And what's really interesting is that in another parallel move, they both got kind of outmaneuvered. So there's a military coup in Egypt, right? And so instead of getting a parliamentary regime, the Weft had every expectation it would dominate. We got a military regime. And then in Morocco, you know, the way that independence happened empowered the king, the figure of the king, right? Who then spent, you know, a couple of decades trying to wrest any other meaningful power away from the political parties. So suddenly you had these big threatening movements that were opposition. And it's in those kinds of situations, I think that regimes turn to cooptation. You can't just repress the waft out of existence. It has too many memories. You have to, well, they tried, it didn't work very well. You can't just, you know, slaughter everyone who's a part of this Istiklal. You have to do something else with them, right? And so they were both co-opted in different ways um, and at different times. So the waft not meaningfully brought into the legal political system until 1984. Istiklal was in, and then it was out, and then it was in, and then it was out. And then there's this sort of turning point in the mid-1970s. So again, 1970s, 1980s, you see these parties really join the formal structures of the authoritarian regime at a moment when there were very high expectations about how well they would do. And then you sort of see them decay from there. And so there's this great parallelism, which, you know, in my back in my more positivist days, I thought was going to be this great controlled comparison. Um, and then it turned out that there were too many variables um, and it, it just didn't quite fit into that kind of a model. Um, but so those are the those are the kind of trajectories of the parties that I was trying to understand. Now, one, um, of, the the, one of the points that you make really well in the book is that it's not so much that uh, they stopped being oppositional. It's that people just stopped caring what they said because they, they just didn't matter anymore. And that when you're talking about the effects of co-optation. And so maybe talk about that a little bit in terms of, you know, as part of their trajectories, like why, why do they stop mattering? Yeah. Yeah. So our usual understanding of co-optation is that, you know, parties come into the political system, they're given something and in exchange, they stop acting like opposition. That turns out to just not be empirically true. Um, Istiklal and the Waft do all kinds of things that we would usually classify as acting like opposition, boycotting elections, withdrawing from cabinets, criticizing government programs, endorsing general strikes in the Moroccan case. 
Um, it's, so it's, it's, I mean, this is, and this is actually where the title of the book comes from. Um, I was sitting in a, um, lobster restaurant actually with a WAFT party official, well, activist really. Um, and I was asking him about the current state of the party. And he said, you know, we're shouting in a cage. Mm. There's no echo. And that was what really helped me understand, um, what was going on is that the parties hadn't stopped being oppositional. It was that people didn't respond right? There was no like mass or other party response. So why is that? Well, in the case of these two parties, um, it has to do with the way they talked about their own co-optation. So you kind of have two choices if you're being co-opted. You could do a sort of a road to Damascus moment where you say, you know, we used to be anti-regime, but now something has changed or a viewpoint has changed or goals have changed. And so now we are different and we're going to be pro-regime. That's going to lose you some people, but you know, it's an option. The other option, which is the option that both the Waft and the Club took, was to claim that absolutely nothing was different and that joining the regime was like a literally a step in the process of them overthrowing the regime, which doesn't make a ton of sense, right? I mean, it might turn out to be true in the long run, but people aren't like ordinary people, ordinary, you know, activists aren't going to sit around and wait for 40 years to see if the Waft or the Club is right, that like co-optation was a way to bring down the regime. In the moment, it looks like hypocrisy. And so the more times they look like hypocrites, the less anyone pays attention to what they're saying, right? And so, I mean, I think if there was, I, I sort of shy away from policy, policy mm-hmm. takeaways. Um, but I think if there were a policy takeaway from this book, it would be, you might actually want to try the road to Damascus option, right? If you're a political party, you might actually want to say, you know, something changed, I went, you know, we went through a, a particular experience and now we understand the system differently. We understand change differently because otherwise, you know, you're just going to be constantly assailed with these threats of hypocrisy that are really hard to combat, actually, because they're not wrong. You're saying you're pro-democracy and you're participating in an undemocratic regime. Like, that's a huge mm-hmm. dilemma, you know, that parties have to kind of overcome. Well, it's interesting, you know, when you get in really into the details, into the empirical weeds of this. Uh, so, for example, as you're talking, I'm thinking about your example about uh, the Great March in 1975. And most people think that in the historiography that this is the moment at which, you know, the yeah. Istiklal changes and you yeah. make a very different argument. Absolutely. Istiklal, you know, doesn't change its own rhetoric. In fact, it doubles down on its own rhetoric, Right. Um, you know, the way, interestingly enough, the way that Istiklal frames, and again, I should say I'm basing this on a few things, the party's Arabic language newspaper, um, speeches made by party members, party conference documents, interviews with people, so all kinds of things. Um, but what the party says about the Green March is in fact that it was their idea first. Mm-hmm. And that what they're seeing is that the king actually picked up their idea and is going with it, not what's usually depicted in the historiography, both in Morocco and in sort of global scholarship, which is that the king like forced this on the parties and they had no choice but to go along with it. And so Istiklal is narrating this as a victory, right? Um, And that's the thing is like, we can from the outside say, well, something must have changed. But I think it's actually really important for the outcome to understand that they never acknowledged that anything had changed, that they very much believed that this was part of this long process that they were involved in that would eventually in the future, the imaginary future, right, is going to bear fruit. 
And then in the case of the WAFT, the example that really jumped out at me was when they decided to boycott, I think it was in 1990, and it turned out to be a disaster for them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, you know, I think one of the things that's really interesting, and this is where I draw um, on some theories of narrative and historical employment, um, and especially the work of Hayden White. Um, and I am simply the latest in a long chain of people to do work drawing on Hayden White. Um, but, you know, the thing about this romance, sort of capital R romance, right, that the parties are telling is that the structure of the story is that the hero perseveres on their journey despite setbacks. They never give up. They never change their tactics. They never change their aims. They just keep going. And eventually they get to victory and they're redeemed and everything is revealed to have been the right choice all along. So the Wuft boycotts this election in 1990, thinking somewhat reasonably, um, because based on past experience, that the regime was going to rig it. And then the regime, because most of the opposition parties are boycotting the election, doesn't rig the election, right? Um, and they look silly, and they're out of parliament for five years, and they're a political party. Parliament is what they do, even if parliament is sort of this sad shadow of its former self. But instead of saying, hey, we really messed this up, we should really try a different tactic, um, they just keep on their stuff. It's the same narrative. You know, it's the same like, well, we knew there would be setbacks. We knew things would go wrong. That doesn't mean we need to adjust our policy. Um, we actually just need to keep going the way we were going before, right? And so there's not a lot of real, I think, and I think this is also a reason why people become skeptical of the parties there there just isn't that much like actual soul searching that happens in public facing language or even in party facing language are people doing it individuals in their homes a hundred percent but it's not coming out and that sort of lack i think of like authenticity um is another thing that people pick up on when they're trying to evaluate like should we take these parties seriously or not because the activists i know and met are in many cases like committed people who really do want democratic change and who really believe and are willing to take risks for it. Um, but that's a very different question than like what happens at the level of the party and the party's own presentation of itself. Now, the theoretical heart of the book um, is really about, you know, kind of contesting the way we've understood co-optation and, uh, and kind of arguing you know, about these types of things of understanding um, co-optation from the perspective of the co-opted, I, I suppose, would be the way to, to phrase it. So why don't you walk us through this a little bit in terms of what's wrong with the existing explanations uh, and, uh, and kind of what you come up with instead? Yeah. So one thing that I try to do throughout the book is to try to communicate the idea that we as scholars you know, co-optation is not just a backroom financial deal. It's an interpretive dilemma. It's a set of behaviors that happen in the world. Parties participate in authoritarian structures, even when they claim to be opposition, that we all need to interpret. Scholars interpret it, everyday people interpret it, party members interpret it, the regime interprets it also, right? And that what co-optation means is decided in that interpretive contest, essentially. I don't want to say market because market metaphors, but but in that contest between different interpretations and regimes who want to discredit their opposition routinely say that it is because they were paid off, 
They took some perks. They sold out. It turns out they didn't really have those oppositional commitments. You know, the most extreme version of this that you see in some um, like local accounts, both scholarly and not scholarly, and, and in a few accounts sort of on the global scholarship side, um, is that these people were never opposition at all. They were just pretending to be in order to get access to the perks, mm. right? That's exactly, just for the record, what the regime wants people to believe about the opposition. And so the extent to which we as scholars repeat that as fact without going and checking that it's actually true, we are not just talking about co-optation. We are participating in co-optation right? We are lending credence to one interpretation of what's happening here. And what really matters in co-optation, because parties don't stop being oppositional, right, is the interpretation. So I try to argue that by sort of assuming, and I understand why people do it. It's hard to observe this stuff. It's very secret. Authoritarianism makes research very difficult. But by assuming that selling out is what's happening, we're actually promoting what is essentially a pro-regime, you know, understanding of what's happening. Now, we may want to do that. Some people may want to do that. That's that's their choice. I think the best thing we can do as scholars is, one, to present the entire range of available interpretations, right? And to understand that in these moments, parties are going to interpret their co-optation differently than the regime is. And if we're going to listen to the regime claims, we need to also listen to the party claims. Secondarily, and this is where we go a little bit more into the, you know, theories of genre, um, so people are free to get off the wagon at this point if they want to, um, I think we tend to think about opposition under authoritarianism as a set of strategic dilemmas. That like, if only opposition makes the right choices, you know, if if opposition groups can just get together, if they can just do a single electoral list, if they can, you know, if they could just do a different message, you know, that somehow the authoritarian regime would fall. And, you know, I think having spent now, you know, 20 years thinking about opposition to authoritarianism, um, there are examples of united opposition with great messaging where the authoritarian regime does not fall, right? And so we need to take seriously the power imbalance here. Mm -hmm. And to me, the genre of tragedy, which focuses mainly on how people struggle to make the best choice possible in a world of bad choices, is a much better fit for the realities of authoritarianism rather than us sitting here in our offices and trying to tell opposition parties that, you know, if only you rewrote that banner, you know, maybe the regime would fall. You know, we all know that's not true, but I think we tend to think about it still in these terms of like, it's all on the opposition to adopt the right strategy. And I don't think we fully take seriously how constrained opposition behavior under authoritarianism actually is. I think one other thing which really comes out of your narratives of these two, these two specific parties is when you're pointing out that it's wrong to think about them as opposition per se, or as liberal or left or whatever, yes. but they're nationalist. And then you yeah. have to see their choices through their own lens. Yeah. One thing I always enjoy doing is reading um, media coverage about either the Istiklal or the Waft, um, because it's an absolute roll of the dice, whether they're going to be described as liberal or conservative or right or left or pro-regime or anti-regime. Um, and I think one reason for that is that, you know, in the United States, we tend to see politics in this very shallow one dimensional spectrum where like you're got the left on one side and the right on another side, you know, in 
the region, it doesn't necessarily work like that. Like, where do you put the Islamists? Like, where do you people put the people who still think Sudan should be part of Egypt? You know, like what, how do we classify these different positions? So it's much more complicated, but also these are clearly nationalist parties. And so I think one reason people think they've changed their positions or sold out is that people thought they were leftist parties um, or otherwise thought they were something other than what they were. These were nationalist movements. They were founded on a commitment to national independence, to national integrity, right? Um, and to some of the, you know, founding myths that all nationalisms are based on. Um, so, you know, a lot of the Wuff stuff talks about Egypt's particular heritage as the birthplace of literally everything, right? Um, and Istiklal is very concerned with Morocco's territorial integrity um, as it understands it, right? But those aren't because they have conceded something to the regime. They've always thought that, right? right. There were some moments, um, you know, I think Adria Lawrence's work has really helped me understand this. There were some moments during French colonialism when, you know, Istiklal was a little bit more oppositional to the idea of a king than they are now. But since independence, they've been monarchists, right? Since they've been around, the Wuft has never evinced a complete commitment to free speech. That's not something they believe in, right? They've always been skeptical of Islamists because of this tension between the Islamic community and the national community, right? And so, you know, by mis by sort of mischaracterizing these parties, we've kind of inferred a kind of policy change as a result of co-optation that actually never really happened. They've been surprisingly consistent. Um, and I think it goes to show, you know, so much emphasis has been put on nationalist parties that came to power as authoritarian regimes, you know, in China, in Kenya, in all of these paradigmatic cases. And we don't talk that much about nationalist opposition. And I think there are actually quite a few nationalist opposition parties in the world that deserve to be recognized as nationalists um, and that it'll actually help clear up our analysis in a lot of ways. No, that's interesting. And, you know, so I guess the last thing I wanted to talk about then was, you know, the title of the book, um, or the subtitle of the book is Political Life yeah. After Co-Optation. And the final third of the book really does look at kind of life after co-optation. And it's like part of my, when I was reading that, it's part of me is like, yeah, how do they live with themselves, um, you know, <laughs> in, 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 under these circumstances? Yeah. But um, but you have a couple, of, you have two chapters that really go into depth and kind of what keeps these movements together? Why do people still join them? What do they think they're doing? Um, when they're engaging politically under these conditions? Yeah, so the one of the first questions I asked everybody I talked to um, in Egypt and Morocco was, why did you join the party? Um, and it got to a point where I realized that almost everyone I had talked to was telling me that they had joined the party because a member of their family had been in the party. Usually their dad, sometimes their grandfather, or because the party had played some kind of a role like by providing early education or a summer camp or something that sort of complemented their upbringing. And, you know, on the one hand, I thought, okay, that makes some sense. You know, we know from, from democratic politics that like, you know, partisanship is heritable in some sense, but this is a way more low sort of low reward, high risk activity than that. And so it was actually really surprising to me Um no one really described a process of like laying out all the political parties and deciding which one fit their ideology best. Mm -hmm. It was like, oh, I sort of grew up in the Istiklal or like, well, you know, by the time I started thinking about it, I had already been a Wuftist for a long time. Um, 
And in some ways that makes sense. You know, these parties, their reputations are tanking, right? Um, They don't have, because it's not an open political system, they don't have that many opportunities to attract new members. So what they do is they reproduce themselves through families. And usually that's actually literal, but even when it's not literal, the sort of literal family gives an anchor to this metaphorical discourse of the family. Um, And I found that that actually supports their survival in a lot of ways. So it helps them recruit new members, obviously, which would otherwise be difficult. It actually helps them avoid splits um, because there's all of this, you know, mm-hmm. relevant societal cultural stuff to draw on about how families don't separate. In fact, how like families, it's what Suad Joseph calls familial connectivity um, in Lebanon is, you know, people understand themselves as deeply and inextricably linked to family members. Um, and it also provided space. So I talked to one um, one guy in Cairo who talked about how when he was a little kid, you know, his he, he would learn one thing at school about Nasser, and then he would come home and his dad would be like, okay, I'm gonna tell you the real thing, but you cannot say it to anyone outside the house, right? And he does the same thing with his own child. I mean, this was during, um, I guess this was during the Morsi year, Um, but he's doing the same thing with his own kid. He's saying like, this is what you're going to learn in school, but you have to remember there's this other truth that we don't always talk about. And Mm -hmm. so in the space of the family, you know, which remains autonomous, I think even in the most repressive authoritarian regimes, there remains some space in there. These parties have been able to survive. Um, And I, I, you know, I, I far be it for me to defend the patriarchy, but I do think that, we often dismiss these parties as patrimonial and patriarchal, right? We say that's a bad thing, that they would do better if they operated more like a political party in a democracy where, you know, you just elected the leader and like, no, it didn't matter whose child you were. And, you know, you recruited people the normal way, whatever that is. Um, it wouldn't. These parties would be gone if they didn't have the family connections that they have. And to the extent that they do sometimes rear their heads, that they are still oppositional. So if we care about that, we need to accept that family isn't always a negative, right? That that what looks from the outside like, oh, you're doing democratic politics wrong is actually an adaptation to survival under authoritarianism and has some real, um, real benefits if you care about continuing to have party pluralism in these situations. And when you do see splits, you point out, it's often generational in nature. Absolutely. Um, and I, I, one thing I think a lot of us sort of got stuck in our ears after um, the Arab Spring was this stuff about youth, you know, and it's like, oh, it's always the youth. And this was another great example of like, when you go and check, it's not always the youth, right? So in the Istiklal, you were forced to retire from the youth wing at the age of 45. Um, But sometimes they can't find new leaders. And so people are allowed to stay on for a few extra years. And so sociologically, like these aren't Huntington's youth. These aren't college students with leisure time. These are working parents, right? Um, And so one of the things that I realized was that their ideas about the regime and how to relate to it were shaped not by the fact of their age, but by what had been happening when they were young, right? So the generation that's now in their 40s and 50s in the Istiklal were young during the 1990s. And the 1990s in Morocco were this time of incredible upheaval, right? 
you know, Hassan II was dying. No one really knew exactly what was going to happen with the transition. There was all these big questions about there's super contentious strikes, all kinds of things. This was a time of like asking questions that hadn't been asked for a long time. And that spirit sticks with that generation of people, even though they're now much, much older. And so I think in in that sense, you know, that that last substantive chapter in the book is is aimed to be a little bit of a corrective at the assumption that like it's always youth. I mean, the same thing is true in Egypt, by the way. You know, um, some of the key activists um, who were involved, we talk about the young people, but there were people in their 60s who were incredibly essential to the groundwork for the 2011 uprising. It's not so much about whether you currently are young, I think, so much as it is about what political expectations and here I use the work of Carl Mannheim, um, you know, what political norms and questions you were exposed to during that really formative period when you were young. Oh, it's really interesting. So we've been speaking to uh, Sophia Fenner about her new book, Shouting in a Cage. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and this week we're joined again by Christian Ulrichsen of Rice University's Baker Institute, uh, expert on the Gulf, Saudi Arabia, and uh, currently finishing up two interesting books. Christian, thanks for taking the time to talk with us. Thanks for having me back. So maybe we can start by talking about something which is, you know, perennially in the minds of uh, of Washington, at least, uh, certainly of the Biden administration, for reasons that are not 100% obvious. Um, this idea of uh, promoting a normalization agreement between Saudi Arabia and Israel, and more broadly building on the Abraham Accords, uh, which the Trump administration initiated with uh, the UAE and Bahrain. Can you tell us a little bit about how this looks from the Gulf and what you think is happening in these in these talks and negotiations? Well, I think discussions in the Gulf are very different from the perspective in D.C. The perspective in D.C. is very much, I think, focused on what is in the U.S. or perhaps Israel's interests. Whereas in the Gulf, I think they're looking at it from a regional perspective in terms of what it means for a rapprochement in the region, which we've seen over the past year with Iran, with uh, balancing different groups and actors in the Gulf and the wider Middle East, and why it would make sense now for Saudi Arabia to to join the Abraham Accords. It's not just about uh, energy dimensions or slotting in concessions on a civil nuclear program. It's also about issues such as the, the Palestinian issue, which in the Gulf they haven't forgotten about, and it's front and center. And I think that's a a discrepancy or perhaps a divergence, which has mm-hmm. become very clear with the the, the flare-up of fighting in, in Gaza. The, the, you can't simply just focus on Palestinian content or concessions as a piece on a chessboard that you're trying to slot into to get an agreement. And I think that has been a, a point of contention. I think for the Saudi position, it's become maybe a bit more clear since the fighting in Gaza. Mm-hmm. that they do need to make sure they have a Palestinian uh, solution much more visible and central. Uh, but of course, with this Israeli government, where that leaves the potential for an accord is anyone's guess. But I think it's become clearer now that this divergence is very real and that the perspective in the Gulf is quite different from that in D.C. Now, before the before the current fighting uh, in Gaza began, uh, it seemed like progress was being made. 
And uh, as the as Saudis were like talking about this and uh, beginning to you know justify it in the public sphere, um, what did you see as the main lines of of, of self interest that they were actually pursuing? How are they justifying this as something which uh, was worth doing? Well, first of all, I think what the Saudis have been doing is signaling very clearly that Israel is no longer considered to be a state, an adversarial state. We we're in a process now of almost normalizing normalization. Uh, it's similar to what happened in the UAE for, for much of the 2010s, so that when normalization eventually came, the timing may have taken people by surprise, but the fact that it had occurred was no big deal. It, it just formalized an already uh, an arrangement that people already knew about and had accepted. And so I think we're in that process now with, with the Saudi mm -hmm. leadership conditioning the public to, to expect it at some point. It may not happen this week, next month, or or next year, but at some point I think it will. So we're in this long drawn out process. I think the Saudi leadership, especially with Mohammed bin Salman, is trying to present itself as this indispensable actor in the Middle East, where all roads have to lead through Riyadh at some point. And I think that probably extends to the Palestinian question as well. I think we've seen with the Arab League summit in May, with the Saudis trying to take the lead on uh, re-engaging with Syria, albeit cautiously. They want to make sure that they, rather than perhaps the UAE, for example, is uh, is seen as the sort of main regional mm -hmm. actor in, in this sort of new Middle East politics that we're seeing, this policy of rapprochement and reconciliation. So I think that's what the Saudis are trying to achieve. They're trying to make sure that they lead and the rest of the Arab world follows, whether or not that's going to happen is another matter, but I think that's what they're trying to achieve. Let's pick up on that a little bit. But there's been a lot of discussion recently, kind of at a at a, at a side uh, thing, kind of as a tangential thing. Um, you know, because in Washington, all, all they can look at is the is the normalization agreement. But in the region, it seems like the tension between the UAE and Saudi Arabia has been something which has been increasingly of interest, um, whether it's in Yemen or whether it's in the competition over these. You know who's going to do normalization right, or who's going to lead that kind of block? Can you say anything about how this has unfolded uh, uh, over the last year or so, and how significant it actually is in terms of changing dynamics in the Gulf? I mean, just on that issue of normalization, when the UAE normalized, the only real country in the Gulf was to follow was Bahrain, and then of course Morocco, and to some extent Sudan, although it's never clear whether that actually normalized or not. Uh, so, I mean, the UAE didn't lead i mean in the sense that few countries followed and i think the saudis would want to make sure that if they did something the rest of the region would probably follow them there's certainly an element of increasing competition potentially rivalry i think yemen could become a real flashpoint especially mm -hmm. if the saudis decide to do a deal with the houthis that obviously meets saudi basic interests in terms of having a, a relatively stable southern border uh, whether that leaves out the uh, uae's backed separatist movements in the south and how they accept it, I think, will be something that will be a potential trigger for more conflict, unfortunately, for Yemen, as well as for tension between Saudi Arabia and the UAE. I think the closer we get to 2030 and another six years to go, but mm -hmm. many of the Giga projects, which are now so closely associated, not just with Vision 2030, but with Mohammed bin Salman, are really aimed at winning market share from economic sectors that the UAE has had a 25-year head start in. They're all about travel, tourism, entertainment, hospitality. Mm -hmm. 
and doing so on a scale which is massive, absolutely, potentially would sort of overwhelm anything the UAE has done. Now, the UAE is not taking that lying down. We've already seen Dubai, for example, relaxing its liquor laws, making it easier to uh, to get licenses and to buy to buy alcohol. So I mean, we're seeing very closely a, a competitive element. I don't think yet we're going to see a political rupture like we saw, for example, with Qatar in 2017. But I think the element of economic competitiveness mm-hmm. is definitely there. And perhaps one thing I do think about in terms of a black swan event for the Gulf is if we get closer to 2030 and uh, some of the gig up projects or the vision itself is perhaps underperforming, what uh, what what sort of actions perhaps do either Mohammed bin Salman or the people around him feel they have to take to, mm. to try and deliver? Because there'll certainly be a lot of pressure on the people around the Crown Prince to to make reality everything that he has promised. And certainly some of the giga projects do seem to be quite uh, ambitious in their scope and scale. Well, I mean, that actually raises an interesting point, is that in, in terms of making sense of Saudi strategy, um, some people would point to just that, Mohammed bin Salman's personal political domestic interest being the key driver, um, and that this is really about trying to buy space for him to continue to consolidate power and avoid any any you know challengers. Um, how much do you think that's what's going on as opposed to these broader uh, kind of regional and international uh, aspirations and interests? Well, I think one of the ironies of the full Russian invasion of Ukraine is that the campaign to isolate Vladimir Putin has really had a side effect of rehabilitating Mohammed bin Salman. It's really brought him out of the sort of the Western isolation that he'd been in since 2018, since the uh, the killing of Jamal Khashoggi and the the war in Yemen. I mean, it's made Mohammed bin Salman almost uh, indispensable in terms of people's uh, views on energy dynamics, oil prices. Of course, Biden went to Mm-hmm. Jeddah in July 2022, hoping for Saudi movement on oil prices. As Saudis did the opposite, very much I think flexing their muscles and showing, in their view, who who's the boss in that relationship. And certainly, the uh, the perhaps the dynamic there is that Mohammed bin Salman does need oil prices to be at a certain level to generate the revenues to pay for the vision. Partly because uh, economic uh, investment into Saudi Arabia collapsed in 2017 after the the Ritz Carlton. Uh, detention of so many of the Saudi business elite. Uh, investment initially had been hoped would fund a lot of the projects. That hasn't happened. He now needs an oil price at probably 80 or $90 a barrel at least, which clearly is going to create friction with the US. But certainly Mohammed bin Salman is acting in his own interests, both with oil, mm-hmm. but also in terms of trying to reconcile with Iran, to de-risk. I mean, he doesn't need, I mean, he does cannot afford to have regional instability. Um, he will remember, for example, in March 2022, the uh, Jeddah Grand Prix, the Formula One Grand Prix, which took place uh, against the backdrop of black smoke billowing out across the, across the racetrack because Houthi militants had fired rockets and hit an Aramco, an Aramco supply uh, depot. And that sort of image, which goes around the world, doesn't present that image of a stable, secure Saudi Arabia that would be necessary to bring in the 150 million tourists that the Saudis now say they want by 2030, or Mohammed bin Salman in his uh, Discovery Channel interview in July said that he expects the population to be 50 million by 2030. Well, it's 33 million today, so he's got to find 17 million additional residents of Saudi Arabia in six years. And that means you need a stable and secure 
Saudi Arabia, at least in people's vision and people's perspectives? No, it is, it, it's very interesting that you put it that way. When Mohammed bin Salman you know, sort of came into power, his initial foreign policy was quite bellicose. Uh, the invasion of, Lebe uh, uh, of Yemen, uh, so the way he dealt with Lebanon, with a number of other you know, areas and flashpoints. And from what you're saying, it seems like maybe that has gone in the other direction now as he's seeing a more uh, cooperative and stable region as more of in his interest than uh, one that's escalating and projecting power. Well, I think firstly, he probably has learned the sort of a lesson of that initial three or four years after he became prominent from 2015 up until about 2019, 2020, when he was really in a period of difficult diplomatic isolation. But to some extent, I think there have been lessons learned. But he also made it his mission to, to transform the economy. I mean, he announced Vision 2030 in 2016. And we're now in 2023. We're, we're halfway there. I mean, mm -hmm. seven years since 2016, seven years to 2030. So I think the necessity of trying to de-escalate the region so that he can focus resolutely on domestic economic policy, I think, is something that has really hit home. That this is no time now for regional or foreign adventures, perhaps we saw that in 2015, 16, and 17. So I think that has become the absolute priority just because Mohammed bin Salman has put so much of his personal credibility on the line in terms of Vision 2030, that it's got to perform, it's got to deliver. Otherwise, he will be potentially in, in difficulty just because I think he's promised so much and expectations have been raised. Now, we've been speaking mostly about Saudi Arabia so far, but one thing which has always characterized your work is that you look at the Gulf in its, in its totality and the, the Gulf Cooperation Council, and you've written about Qatar, the UAE, um, and, and more broadly about uh, Gulf security. And I wonder if we could zoom out a little bit and if you could talk maybe about how you see things developing in the broader Gulf context. Um, you know, is the do we still have a functional GCC and has it re, has it returned after the blockade of Qatar? How are kind of regional elites and 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 leaders thinking about security issues in this context beyond just Saudi Arabia and Mohammed bin Salman's personal concerns? I mean, the GCC still exists, but I think we have not seen it fully recover from the split between 2017 and 2020. I think it was very instructive, for example, that the outreach to Iran occurred separately. The Saudis did their own outreach. Mm -hmm. The UAE did a separate outreach. They didn't combine. We still see countries like Oman and Qatar performing their mediation, as they always have done, but again, on sort of bilateral basis. So I think we see individual countries acting in their own natural interest, perhaps less so at a GCC level. I think the big change over the last few years really has been the uh, sort of disappearance of Kuwait as a uh, sort of regional actor, just because Kuwait's had so many domestic issues with uh, an aging and mm. an aging leadership, and of course a continuing political uh, paralysis at home. So we've seen sort of Kuwait move away from that sort of balancing, dynamic, mediatory role that they played. But we've seen Qatar and Oman step up. And of course, they've done so with, with Iran and with trying to de-escalate between the US and Iran. So I think we still see individual leaders continuing to take action they think in that would be in their own national rather than perhaps a regional interest. 
I didn't get the big changes. A man been sold, man been hired. Sorry, can I can I interrupt for a moment? Um, yeah. In terms of Oman, uh, do you see any significant changes in its mediation efforts or foreign policy since the passing of Sultan Qaboos, or is it basically uh, the same thing but within uh, a new context? Well, I think it's basically the same thing. They continue to facilitate rather than mediate. I think they continue to play a role in exchanging information, passing messages, trying to free. Uh, captives, for example. So I haven't seen a huge shift in terms of Oman. I think the Qataris also have continued to do very much a similar uh, track to, to what they've been doing for, for more than a decade now. And actually, they've been quite successful in terms of at least achieving individual outcomes like the, the prisoner exchange between the US and Iran that just happened in Doha in September. I was going to say just the other big shift, I think, is that Mohammed bin Salman and Mohammed bin Zayed are no longer the, the sort of dynamic duo acting in lockstep. I think that uh, that probably ended around 2019. And I think the the way the UAE redeployed in Yemen without really telling the Saudis is probably the public break in that relationship. And I think certainly the those two individuals who many in D.C. would always talk about as if they were sort of two peas in a pod, I think that's no longer the case. Although I still think that individual elements of the Saudi Emirati leadership are still close. It's just not at that top leadership level anymore. Now, in your, if you go all the way back to your 2010, 2009 book, the one, the one from the, before the Arab Spring, um, one of the, one of the points that you made in your work back then was that we have to think about security in a holistic way. And that included issues like climate, uh, uh, water, and, uh, and things like that. And, you know, obviously in the last, whatever, 14 years, all those issues have become more and more salient and important, uh, especially the climate change issues. And you've seen the UAE uh, taking a leading role at the hosting the, the COP coming up. Um, and I'm curious if you see this having any effect on the kind of the political or security thinking of Gulf leaders at this point. Um, is it still just a side issue or is it actually moving towards a more central position where they realize something needs to be done? Well, I think certainly the Saudis, the UAE, especially with COP coming up, I think they realize they need to be at the table. They need to be part of the, uh, the agenda so that they can actually try and shape, in their view, shape in their interest, the decision making to do with climate action and the energy transition. This isn't something they can just sit out while, while decisions that will affect the future of oil and gas producers are being made. And whether or not it's right that they should try and steer it in that direction is another matter, but I think they made a calculation. They do need to be actively involved in trying to shape that decision-making. I mean, it's been 11 years since Qatar hosted a COP in 20, uh, 2012. And I think even in that 11-year span, we've seen climate change and climate action really become exponentially higher up the agenda. I mean, climate change is now real, it's visible in ways perhaps it wasn't in, 20, in 2012. So I do think there's much more pressure now. And for someone like Mohammed bin Salman, who is 38 years old, you know, climate change will happen on his watch. Mm -hmm. I mean, if he wants to rule Saudi Arabia for 30, 40, even 50 years, it'll happen when he's king. And we see all these climate studies that suggest that by 2070, conditions on the Arabian Peninsula may be dangerously hot for human habitation. Well, in 2070, Mohammed bin Salman will be the same age that his father is today. Mm -hmm. So he needs to, I mean, it, it will impinge on him in a way it won't on leaders like Joe Biden or even people like Mohammed bin Zayed, who won't be around in the late century of 2070. Or even by the 2040s, where the next round of summer Hajj 
right if it's dangerously hot for or unhealthy to do that where does that leave saudi arabia's sort of position within the islamic world i mean these are conditions and things that really they do need to think about because it's going to happen sooner and on his watch especially it's already dangerously hot and i mean you look at the temperatures yep. basra or uh or kuwait city i mean this is like extraordinary i was in doha last month and i've never experienced it so humid it was unbelievably humid. I mean, I've ne- and even people in Qatar were saying the same thing. They've never seen it so hot and humid in mid-September. Yeah. Well, I guess the other, you know, kind of thinking about this in you know, the holistic way that you were just describing, I mean, we have had leadership turnover and kind of new generation coming into office in Oman and Qatar and in Saudi Arabia. I guess not so much yet in Bahrain, although everyone is kind of expecting that to happen at some point. Um, Kuwait still seems stuck um in in where it is but it does seem like you have this new generation of leadership coming in and maybe kind of tearing up some of the old rules and and creating something a little bit different well yes and what's remarkable is that it's been 10 years since uh Sheikh Tamim became the mm-hmm. emir of Qatar at the age of 33 and he's now in terms of heads of state he's now the second longest head of state in the GCC that's a uh, only the king of only the king of Bahrain has been there longer since 1999 so we have seen this turnover. It's quite remarkable. And we're also seeing some of the leaders, Mohammed bin Salman especially, being younger, I mean, de facto leader in his mm-hmm. case. And we're seeing people here now who could be shaping the next phase of Gulf politics for the next 20 or 30 years. Um, even Mohammed bin Zayed is only 62, I think. He could still be there actively and very vocally and visibly for at least another 20 years. And mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. I think these are the figures who will take Gulf politics up to mid-century, but against the backdrop again of the energy transition globally and uh, increasing urgency on climate change, which will affect them both in a, an empirical way, but also in terms of narratives and kind of pressure on them to act or pressure on them to, do, uh, well, to take decisions with oil and gas. Mm-hmm. Let's let's then change gears a little bit. Um, uh, we're still talking about the Gulf, but I want to talk about your other big interest, uh, the book that you have that you're working on, um, that and uh, things you've written about quite a bit, and that's uh, the role of the Gulf in in global sports. And uh, obviously, there's been a lot of attention to Saudi uh, interventions in in professional golf, in um, in various uh, football leagues, and recruiting kind of washed up stars to come play in their league. Um, I'm curious, like, what, what what do you think is going on here? What made you want to go and turn this into a book-length project? Well, firstly, I think it's absolutely connected to what we were talking about with mm-hmm. Vision 2030 and the Giga projects and the, the fact that the Saudis want 150 million tourists a year by 2030. They want a uh, population to be 50 million. You, I mean, those people have to come from somewhere. And I think certainly the football and the golf separate, in separate ways about using sport and using the mass appeal, the fact that sport reaches people globally in ways that investing in Facebook or Uber simply don't. Mm. You can use that to tell a story of a changing Saudi Arabia. The Saudi Arabia you see today is not the Saudi Arabia you thought you knew, the Saudi Arabia of 9-11 or of even of Yemen or of Khashoggi. Now, we see that that's not necessarily the case. We still see lengthy prison sentences being given to anyone who criticizes the leadership uh, 34 years for that poor uh, PhD student in the UK. So things aren't necessarily changing, but the story is that they are and using sport 
someone like Cristiano Ronaldo, who has half a billion followers on Instagram, when he posts and he does regularly about how wonderful life in Saudi Arabia is, that's the sort of publicity that conventional investments simply can't buy. And so they're using, I think, the, the visibility now that they have and mm -hmm. the fact that you have all these high-profile athletes with mass followings all over the world to, to really tell a story about Saudi Arabia that, as a destination, as a place to be. Um, golf is perhaps a bit different in the sense that they're reaching into middle America, more maybe affluent niche markets, but soccer especially is reaching a mass market and telling that story in a way that a PR company in D.C. simply couldn't. So I think it's all connected. But this is more than just what people mean when they say sports washing. Uh, it, it, there, it seems like it has a much bigger and broader agenda than than just that. Yeah, I think sports washing is a term first in, emerged in 2015 and actually emerged in relationship in relation to Azerbaijan hosting the European Games. Hmm. Um, but it has been applied most often to the Gulf, of course, with Qatar and the World Cup and also to some extent to the UAE as well. And I think some of the critiques of sport washing is that it's selectively applied. I and mean, you could argue that the UK was sports washing in 2012 when they had all these slogans about how Britain was so great in terms of the Olympics. Mm -hmm. And even in 2002, the Salt Lake City Winter Olympics right after 9-11 were to some extent trying to present an image of the US after 9-11 that was strong and powerful and, and sort of almost you know, sort of moving on, recovering and, from the shock. So I think there have been critiques of sports washing. And I... I think from the Saudi point of view, they've been through so much in terms of negative publicity over Yemen, over Khashoggi human rights. As Mohammed bin Salman said on in his interview recently, I just don't think they care. I think sports washing will work if and when a country does con is concerned about its foreign image. But I think with the Saudis, they've just you know, they've been through so much. There's not really a reputation to wash. It's <laughs> it's more about trying to use sport to tell a different story. And if people in the West don't like it, well, that's their issue. And I think that's how the Saudis would see it. But as you were saying before about the possibility of these great uh, mega projects failing, I mean, it does seem that bringing in a bunch of European stars um, into kind of the Saudi league seems to be perhaps setting everything up for failure. Well, I think uh, certainly people have noticed that some of the attendance figures for games in the Saudi Soccer League are below a thousand. I mean, mm -hmm. Some of these stars are playing before crowds that you would expect that a minor league game in, in Europe or even in the US. And Lionel Messi is drawing huge crowds. Well, so the big teams have big crowds. No, I mean, Lionel Messi is drawing big crowds in the United States. Oh, in the US, yes. The yes, same yes, thing yes, doesn't absolutely. seem to be happening in Saudi Arabia. Well, no, I mean, Ronaldo plays in front of 40, 50,000 people when he plays, but uh, even people like Stephen Gerrard, the former England uh, player, when he's in al Etifak, I think last one of the last games, there were fewer than a thousand people there. So there's a discrepancy, I think, between the reality and the expectation. Mm -hmm. And that could be a potential uh, metaphor for Vision 2030. The expectation is huge, but uh, reality on the ground is often something different. And certainly we're, we're halfway there, and Neon still, I think, and the line still seem to be very much uh, on the drawing boards, and they've got less than seven years to get them actually up and running. And certainly you can see from Mastar in the UAE, Mastar was this major renewable energy hub that was planned in 2007 or 2008. It's going to be this massive new development. And it's really 15 years later, very, very small in scale. I mean, mm. it's, it's there, but it's certainly fallen far short of the initial expectations. And I, I think turning these visions literally into reality is going to be quite difficult.
And then meanwhile, on the flip end, you have their investments, both Saudi and Qatari and others, in um, and Emirati, in uh, clubs in Europe um, and uh, the controversies that surround that. Well, yes, and Newcastle, which is now 80% owned by the public investment funds, just had a huge win, 4-1, against Paris Saint-Germain, which is owned by the Qataris. And it's a statement of Saudi Arabia's arrival on the European scene. It was huge. And uh, I think the one example of sports washing you can identify is actually when the, the takeover of Newcastle was announced and you had about 10,000 Newcastle supporters in the streets around the stadium celebrating the arrival of Saudi investment. Hmm. And this was after all the Khashoggi, Yemen human rights difficulties the Saudis have had, to have had thousands of people welcoming and celebrating investment from Saudi Arabia sent a message, I think, that few other investments could have done, which I think really showed how the power of sport could be absolutely transformative, at least on a on a surface level, in trying to change perceptions. One last question, and uh, in, in this going back to perhaps a more somber note, um, but at the time that we're talking, uh, just a few days after Hamas uh, had its insurgency into Israel, and the, and the region is kind of clearly like at a brink of um, all kinds of things that could go wrong, which maybe will have happened by the time this episode airs. So uh, we have to be cautious about uh, predicting the future. Um, but still, the one question that I'm curious if you have a thought on is the extent to which the pro-Palestinian sentiment in the Gulf um, can or could matter politically. In other words, is it just still just like general sentiment which leaders can safely ignore when they feel like it? Or do you feel like it's something bigger than that, uh, which might actually shape the way Gulf governments respond to possible Israeli actions, which we don't know what they're going to be, but I think we have some guesses. I think it was very visible during the World Cup in Qatar at the end of 2022, how when you had this huge gathering of uh, Arabs and Muslims from all over the region, the one issue that they decided that they chose to, to state publicly was support for Palestine. It was incredibly visible during the World Cup at the stadiums and and across the across the tournament, and I think it showed that the centrality of the support for Palestine hadn't gone away. And of course, the you know, the composition of the new Israeli government, which came into office at the end of 2022, was very unpalatable. And certainly, in countries like the UAE and Bahrain, which have normalised, that's complicated decision making. Now, certain I mean, relationships have continued, but uh, especially in the UAE, you see some very high profile Emirati academics now openly supporting Hamas and what they did in, in Israel and actually being incredibly um, incredibly critical. We see the same in Saudi Arabia with people with links to the royal court being much more openly critical than perhaps they would have been a month, two months ago. And I think this is indicative of the fact that this latest uh, violence, as horrifying as it is, is perhaps a reminder that the Palestinian issue hasn't gone away, that it simply cannot be reduced or packaged into an agreement as if it was a commodity, as, as seemed to be the case in DC, that they were just looking to see just how much they could get away with in terms of putting it into an agreement. I think in the Gulf, especially after this latest uh, escalation, it's very much that you cannot just wish it away and think it's going to go away. It's not. So I think it's still very strong. And I think whatever happens in terms of escalation, it will still be followed incredibly closely at a public opinion level, because certainly public opinion certainly hasn't followed uh, normalization in terms of public support for 
Israel, at least in the UAE and in, and in Bahrain. And, and certainly the numbers of tourists that have actually traveled have been certainly very much one way. You've had hundreds of thousands of Israelis going to the UAE. I think the biggest the UAE visitors to Israel is something like 2,000. And, uh, and Bahrain is actually too small to count. So it's been one way, and it hasn't really translated into popular support. And I think this escalation will make it even more difficult to to gain any level of popular traction for the normalization going forward. Well, great. Thank you. We've been speaking to Christian Ulrichsen of Rice University's Baker Institute. Uh, Christian, thank you for taking the time to speak with us. This has been the Middle East Political Science Podcast. Thanks to Sophia Fenner, Christian Ulrichsen for joining us this week. Look forward to seeing you again next week. Yeah.